will do a loving kindness contemplation with indistinction to loving kindness meditation. And since they are overlapping and similar, you have to become aware of their differences. If we know the difference and if we know what we're doing, we have a much better chance of doing it effectively. It's just like building a house. If you are experienced and skilled at it and know exactly what you're doing, it will be much quicker, much more effective, and much more solid. It's the same with this. No difference. Again, I will say the words, and you will repeat them after me, and then I will say something about it. Now, in a contemplation, we have again the same as we had in the first one. We have a truth which is for everyone, valid for everyone, but we are referring it to ourselves. And by referring it to ourselves, we may be able to gain some insight on either how to actualize it or that we haven't actualized it and that is this um, something that we could do Whereas in the meditation, particularly in loving-kindness meditation, even though also the words are being said, it is strictly directed towards arousing the feeling. Whether one can or not is a second matter. But that's where it's directed at. It's directed at arousing the feeling which is then completely drenching oneself with that feeling that's with the direction of the loving-kindness meditation here the loving-kindness contemplation directed towards an inner vision of the either the hindrances that still exist so that there isn't the loving-kindness pouring out of one and isn't actually in the heart or how to get rid of them and how to use that for oneself. So it is an inner understanding. If a feeling arises at the same time, that's fine. But the contemplation leads to insight. The meditation, the concentrated meditation, leads to calm. That's a definite distinction. So it's quite clear to everyone, or is there any question about that? the difference between the two. Are quite clear? All right. In order to get started, please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Now please repeat after me. May I be free from enmity. Now we look at our inner self and try to find out whether we have in the past or have now 
any feelings which are negative, resisting, rejecting of other people or even of situations anything that could be construed to be under the heading of an enemy are we feeling anything like that? is it to our own benefit to have anything like that within? if we find it isn't how do we get rid of it? what do we do? May I be free from hurtfulness. Now again we try to introspect and see whether we have hurt or are at the moment in our thoughts hurtful. We could be hurtful physically or emotionally. Sometimes we can be hurtful thoughtlessly, without mindfulness. First we can make a determination that this should cease within ourselves and also try to get an idea how to prevent it.
May I be free from troubles of mind and body. Now again, we need to look into ourselves to see whether we have any such troubles. Hardly anyone is exempt. How do we remove them or prevent them? What can we do? May I be able to protect my own happiness. The first thing to do is to introspect as deeply as one can to find out what is my own happiness. And is it dependent upon an outer condition which creates the fear of loss? Having found out what it means for oneself, the happiness, then how do I protect it? Can I really protect an outer condition? How do I protect myself from being unhappy? 
whatever beings there are, may they be free from enmity. Now in the beginning we were considering and contemplating loving-kindness towards ourselves. When we come to an understanding of how to remove the blockages, then we will be able also to possibly help others. At least what we can do now is wish that same freedom that we're wishing ourselves and direct our thoughts with that wish to other people which may help as a support Whatever beings there are, may they be free from hurtfulness. Again, we're wishing others freedom from any blockages in heart and mind. And if we have been able to understand the cause for our own hurtfulness, we may be able to pass that understanding on to others through our actions, through our being, possibly through our words. Being harmless is just as catching as being hurtful. Harmlessness means loving. It extends towards beings of any kind, not just human beings.
Whatever beings there are, may they be free from troubles of mind and body. First we have the wish, then we can introspect how can we help. What is in our own power to make that wish come true? Whatever beings there are, may they be able to protect their own happiness. When we wish this for others, it automatically means that we will not interfere with others, but support. Support with our wishes and possibly support with our actions. The introspection should lead us to an understanding of how to do that. If nothing else, it will lead us to the determination to do that. The second pair of spiritual faculties that 
has to balance with each other his concentration and energy. Concentration in the Buddhist terminology always means one thing only. Sama Samadhi in Pali. The eighth step on the Noble Eightfold Path. Sama Samadhi is right concentration. Sama is right. And it means the state, the stay concentration which is absorption. There are others types of concentration mentioned in the Abhidhamma commentaries Upachara and Kanika neighborhood and momentary Buddha never talks about them he talks about one thing that's Samasamari and that's concentration he talks about many other things but that's one of the eight steps on the Noble Eightfold Path it has to balance with energy. Now, obviously, that's quite clear, isn't it? Because if there's no energy behind concentration, the result is sleep. Or drowsiness. Lack of awareness. This lack of an awareness can be quite pleasant. There's no feeling of pain, there's no feeling of discomfort, there is sort of a foggy, woozy state in which nothing at all is happening. Well, it's neither of any kind of concentration, any of them, nor is it energy. It's useless. If one feels the mind going in that direction and is alert enough still to realize that this is happening, one should prevent it under all costs. If it happens once or in a while, it doesn't matter. But if it happens again and again, the mind becomes habituated to it. And then it habitually goes into this foggy, woozy state where it doesn't know anything. Some people actually have that misfortune. They sit down in meditation and go into that state, and if they don't have any guidance at all, they might think that this is desirable. It's not even restful. It can be easily ascertained whether one has been in that state or not when one comes out of it. If one has been concentrated to any degree, there's a great deal of energy afterwards. If one has been in this woozy, foggy state, afterwards one feels tired and would like to go to bed. It's very simple to know what one has been doing in all shades and variations in all different kinds of strengths of that if after the meditation there's a feeling of tiredness one hasn't been meditating 
If after the meditation one feels extremely alert and strong, then there has been concentration. Energy in this terminology is mental energy. Mental energy which of course also has a physical result, however, it concerns only the mind here. And it is um, a balancing factor because if we have too much energy and no concentration, restlessness results. We'd like to go from here to there. We don't really want to sit in meditation. We prefer maybe to dig a ditch rather than sit quietly like this. Too much energy. It's a restless mind which then finds itself as a resultant in a body that wants to do. Now this is not supposed to mean that the body should not do. But the balancing act that we have to perform is very important in this particular instance that the Buddha is talking about these five, a team of five horses pulling a wagon we can see that without the balancing act it's not going to give us the results that we would like to get so a mind which is extremely restless and has a lot of um, ideas and uh, plans and um, even creativity then gets a body that wants to expend energy rather than sit quietly so we need to have in that case if that is the case we need to have a bit of extra determination to sit if we come into this uh, phase where the sitting brings about this um, lack of awareness then we have to counteract that now I already mentioned that at the beginning of this meditation session that if the mind is drowsy don't try to concentrate on the breath the moment of concentration if that ever happens that one moment when the mind actually does get concentrated is exactly the same as the moment when we fall asleep it's a moment of non-thinking nobody can fall asleep while they're thinking so it has to stop thinking and then we fall asleep the moment of getting concentrated is exactly the same if we stop thinking and since the mind is already drowsy and has no experience or skill at this thinks, aha, must be bedtime so goes to sleep this is not helpful for anybody's meditation so if there's any danger of this the mind is drowsy at all then to alert it 
by gaining some insight, by introspection through contemplation, whichever way, it doesn't matter, to look at any of the contemplation topics we have used or just simply the impermanence which is so obvious in the breath itself, in the thoughts, in the uh, change from night to day, from day to night, in the change of the sensations in the body. There is nothing in the whole wide world, in the whole of the universe, that does not proclaim anicca dukkha natta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, callousness. Impermanence is the first and foremost and easiest to see. We can actually see it with our physical eye. All we have to do is look in the mirror. The other aspects which I've just mentioned, I'll talk about them in more detail at another time. But when we want to make our meditation count so that it does something for us, because that's what we're here for, isn't it? Then we have to work on this balancing act. Without this balancing act, it's not going to happen. So we must be very alert to our own state of being. When we start out with the meditation and we feel very alert, keen, interested, determined, energetic, at that time we can put our full attention on the breath and try to stay there in whichever form we have decided to do it. If at the beginning of the meditation we already become aware of the fact that we'd rather have a rest than meditate, then that's not the proper procedure. At that time, contemplation, impermanence, an understanding of everything that arises within, looking at that, trying to see it objectively. The concentration factor which everybody is aiming for is not as difficult as it sometimes appears to be if we have enough of the support system already within. I've talked about all these different aspects of our own character, of our own being, which are necessary. Loving-kindness is a very important one, a very important aspect. Now, we can't produce it on demand if we haven't practiced 
that particular line of approach we can't make ourselves be loving and kind just because it appears to be a good thing but in the Buddha's explanations we don't just have five senses we have six and the sixth one is thinking it's very interesting because we also say I had a sixth sense about that something came up in the mind so it's not just seeing, hearing, tasting, touching smelling it is also thinking and if you have paid any attention to an unpleasant feeling during the meditation and have tried to learn the sequence how a human being operates you must have come to the understanding that first there is the sense contact and then the feeling you don't get an unpleasant feeling in your leg unless there has been a touch contact you don't have the feeling first and the contact after first the sense contact the sense consciousness which produces the sense contact and so it goes with all our senses and that includes thinking so if you think loving kindness eventually you'll feel it you just have to be persevering about it at the beginning of each meditation think it at least if you can feel it that's fine no need to um, take any further instruction on it if you don't feel it think it the feeling will come in fact it is there whoever doesn't feel it is just not used to paying attention to his or her feelings and the feeling may not be extremely strong and therefore it hasn't got the impact and also there is probably an, ex an expectation at the same time love oh that must feel wonderful that's great why should it why should it feel wonderful why should it be great if we get in there and know ourselves a little better we know exactly what it feels like it's warm and soothing safe and secure giving and open friendly and accepting but what's so great about it we expect something exciting huh, from love that's not this kind of love that's an entirely different kind of love that's exciting that's the one that wants something this one just gives there's nothing exciting about it it's easy one feels at ease this is an important beginning for each meditation 
I have already said that, but from past experience I know that it needs to be not only repeated, but also elaborated. So if you have thought it, the feeling will be there, but it may not be so strong that it hits you right in the eye. So gently become aware of it, gently, slowly. Loving-kindness is also being gentle with oneself, being gentle with others, and being gentle with the world around one. Here, the main thing is to be gentle with oneself. If you then have a meditation which you consider not good, and then get angry at yourself, that's even worse. There's no gentleness in it. There's no loving-kindness in it. There's anger and resistance, and there is upset in it. That's not going to help at all. Being gentle and loving towards oneself also has to be balanced. It mustn't deteriorate into indulgence like I can my do my meditation only lying down. That's indulgence. But on the other hand, it must never deteriorate into a tour de force where we force something that is quite alien still to us. It's a gentle process of maturing. Everything that matures does it slowly and gently. All of nature does that. You watch some fruit on a tree. It doesn't mature with a bang. It gently and slowly grows. Out of the flower comes the seed. The seed grows a little. It gets bigger, it gets softer, it gets color until one day we can eat the apple. It's no use standing underneath an apple tree and say, you must. The apple tree couldn't care less. It doesn't have anything to do with you must. Or scolding the apple tree for not being ready at the time you want the apple. The apple tree doesn't care. It's gently maturing but it's continually maturing unless it's been chopped up, cut away and doesn't have any life force. With us, the life force comes from determination, perseverance and patience and a feeling of contentment and acceptance of ourselves. It is the way it is, so we keep on going. The weather is also the way it is, isn't it? 
and nothing we can do about it. Nobody's going to get out there and yell at the rain and save you. It's terrible. Stop. The rain doesn't care. It just is. And we are the same. We just are. And we can mature if we put our intention in that direction. These five spiritual faculties mindfulness, faith and wisdom, energy and concentration together with the other characteristics and faculties which I have talked about eventually bring one to the meditative state which seems to have brought the result one is looking for. I will explain that to you at this point, whether you have already experienced it or not, to give you a direction, but also to show you the purification process. We're talking about first the purification of one's virtue, which we have talked about, the purification of view and mind. Now the purification of mind has all these aspects that we do within and without, in the meditation and outside of the meditation, changing the mind changing the unwholesome to the wholesome. But now we come to which is strictly meditative. Now the others that I have given you are both. Here we come to now to the next step strictly concerned with meditation. And the purification aspect of the meditative process is dramatic. Now, in everyday life, we can forget, and we do. We get angry at someone and forget that this is very unwholesome, very detrimental to our own happiness, our own purification and by the time it's all over we might possibly remember that we could have done something about it if we had thought of it but once we come to the meditative states which I will describe to you the purification aspect is automatic there's nothing to remember and nothing to forget it just happens. We all have five hindrances. Nobody is immune. Only the Arahants, the enlightened ones. 
the first stage of the meditative absorption has five factors each one of those five factors counteracts one of the five hindrances automatically naturally we have to also do something about those hindrances in our daily life as I've already explained to you but because the meditative process makes such an enormous difference everything becomes much easier if you look at this simile our heart and mind can be compared to a garden in which we have beautiful flowers lovely bushes and also lots of weeds like any garden has there are no gardens without weeds unless you get a good gardener in there who pulls them if we don't do that if we don't go into our garden and pull the weeds out but let them grow they have a habit of growing well without any attention and eventually they might overshadow the beautiful flowers and bushes and trees and then we can't find those anymore until we start cutting down those weeds the weeds in our heart and mind need eventually be uprooted but since they have tap roots which are completely enmeshed in our own being it's not easy but we have to cut them down and that's not so difficult and as we cut them down there is room and nourishment for the flowers the beauty the purity of our own heart and cutting the weeds down makes them weaker and their roots have less hold because the whole plant has become weaker and so eventually the uprooting is a matter of course if we look at ourselves in that way we have a nice aspect of neither blame nor praise but the nature of that what is alive it always has both like a rose has thorns a garden has weeds now with this automatic cutting down on the weeds in the meditation our daily practice of watching the unwholesomeness and substituting the wholesomeness becomes so much easier that we eventually notice the change in ourselves quite enormously and realize that it is actually the meditative process that has done it
if that doesn't happen meditation isn't helping us very much is it the first factor of the meditative absorption is one I've already mentioned as an immediate benefit but in order to keep the sequence in order I will mention it again it is initial initial application the initial application means that we sit down and put our attention on the breath everybody's doing it right whether it stays there or not that's the second matter we sit down and put the attention on the breath that's in Pali Vitaka that's the very first step that comes in all meditation whether it is an absorption or whether it's just a trial balloon doesn't matter this one effectively counteracts sloth and torpor but only if we keep on doing it over and over again so in other words if the mind becomes drowsy sleepy unwilling heavy we have to keep on putting the mind back on the breath we have to repeat that initial application in order to have the benefit from it the hindrance of sloth and torpor is compared by the Buddha to being in prison we are imprisoned in a state of being where we are unable to do anything just like when we are in a real prison the door is locked we can't do anything in a real prison we have to wait to be let out by others here we can let out ourselves we can unlock the door sloth and torpor is something that we do experience in daily life it's a procrastination it's an, an unwillingness to get involved it's a lack of commitment it's the necessity of making a living considered as the one thing that one has to do and the rest of the life should be entertainment or pleasure that is a mind which doesn't see clearly naturally we have to make a living one has to earn money in order to live but as I've said before since none of us are going to survive guaranteed that isn't enough is it to make a living and to counteract that the stress and strain of that with entertainment and um a pleasure or relaxation isn't enough because it still only supports this staying alive which is guaranteed not to happen just a matter of time some of us are going to be finished a little earlier and some a little later depending on our age and health 
that's not a direction in life, is it? So if our mind has this kind of limitation, we are imprisoning ourselves unnecessarily. If we can see a little further and are able to understand that there is a maturing and growth process which we have to work on, that means that the mind has got out of its state of lassitude, disinterest. Now some of it in some people it's strong and some it's only weak, but all of us have it. Very few people love to get up at five o'clock in the morning. There are some, believe it or not. Most people rather stay in bed. It is a natural inclination of the mind to do nothing, not to be completely and wholeheartedly interested but to excuse the disinterest with I need some relaxation although the untrained mind never relaxes all it does it distracts itself turning on the television reading a book, going to the telephone, talking to somebody, falling asleep, dreaming. The untrained mind cannot have the kind of relaxation that we really want because it doesn't have the ability yet to do that. So it just, all it gets is a distraction from its worries fears and anxieties which naturally will arise again the Buddha compared sloth and torpor with a um, water pond which was totally muddy so that we could not see our likeness in the water which otherwise could be a mirror the antidotes outside of meditation which he prescribed are learning more about the Dhamma getting more insight into it through learning so that the knowledge then can be applied but also to act as one's own advisor what I'm always saying to you give yourself a pep talk you won't have me around giving you pep talks after this course is over you'll have to give your own pep talks you have to be your own expert at what is important and what is not important 
one of the very interesting aspects of the Buddha's prescription for our mental health and it really boils down to that on a basic level is to have noble friends and noble conversation and this is the antidote for all five hindrances outside of the meditative factors the noble friends who will support our effort who have gone or are going the same way and will keep saying to us that we should not slide back a noble friend who will have noble conversation with us about things which are important and maybe not only worldly things the Buddha considered this the most important factor of the spiritual life when Ananda his cousin and attendant once said to the Buddha sir a good friend is half of the holy life the Buddha said do not say so Ananda a good friend is the whole of the holy life a good friend who has the well-being of the friend at heart on a spiritual level because that person has also the same aspiration and realizes that on the worldly level we can never find it that's on the that's outside of meditation in meditation it is that constant recurrence or recurring application to the meditation subject which counteracts sloth and torpor torpor is in the mind sloth is in the body and unless we do that we will come to that state which I've described earlier where the mind becomes drowsy and disinterested and uh, heavy and foggy and can't see anything so initial renewed constant application to the meditation subject first step in meditation first step towards concentration counteracts our hindrance of sloth and torpor if we don't know that we have natural sloth and torpor within we need to investigate ourselves more clearly it's interesting though that people who have a lot of greed have more sloth and torpor than those who have a lot of hate people with greed are much easier to live with but they have much harder time getting out of their greed they are much happier people than the people with hate but the people with hate usually work harder because it's so uncomfortable to have all that hate within all of us have sloth and torpor but the ones that have the greed have more of it 
The second aspect of the meditative absorption is when it starts happening and it's called sustained application in Pali Vichara. Sustained application means one can actually stay on the breath. It's often compared to hitting the bell and then hearing the sound. The hitting the bell is the initial application. That tone is a sustained application. We stay on it. It's a good simile. The sustained application counteracts a very important hindrance, skeptical doubt. Now some people get out of their skeptical doubt without even this. Most people don't. When we are able to stay on the breath, the first skeptical doubt that goes is of our own ability. Now we know we can do it. It gives self-confidence. It's actually possible. We're not just talking about it. I started meditating in 1963. How long ago is that now? 27 years ago. When I started meditating, was told to watch my breath. I thought, these people must be kidding. It's impossible. Who can stay on the breath? Well, it is possible. But in the beginning, there's doubt of one's own ability to do that because it seems so difficult. And the mind doesn't seem to have any inclination towards it. It doesn't want to do it. That's only because it hasn't been trained. I like to compare the mind, the untrained mind, to an untrained puppy dog. If you've ever had an untrained puppy dog in your house, you know what a nuisance they are. They're not nice and cute and cuddly. But if you haven't trained them, they wet the carpet, they tear the slippers. If you want them to come with you, they sit down on their behind and you have to pull them. They, they bite at the ankles of other people. They do all the wrong things. When you train them, they eventually know to go outside to do their business. They leave the slippers alone and you can, they walk to heel. This is what we have to do with our mind. Make it walk to heal. Listen. Do it. Now when we are able to, when we have a sustained application, we've actually managed that. The mind has finally listened and obeyed. The mind also gets tired of all that thinking. Thinking is very tiring. So it gets tired of all these thoughts which most of them have no um, interesting storyline at all. Most of them are just bits and pieces, fragments. So when we come to that point, 
the skeptical doubt in our own ability is removed. But there's something more important also. The skeptical doubt in the benefit of meditation is removed and the skeptical doubt in the Buddha's teaching is removed. He said so and it's actually true. It's possible. So then most people, not all, but most people who finally come to the point where they can't stay on the meditation subject and experience a follow-up from that, which I will explain in a moment, remain meditators. Although some also fall by the wayside and have to start working hard again to get back on in that, to that ability. But they don't completely leave this. They always come back. And such a person doesn't look for another teaching. This one has proven already to actually do what it promised, even though only in one aspect. I like to compare that with this old and tried and true simile of biting into the mango. If we have never eaten a mango before and we'd like to find out what it tastes like and we ask a friend and the friend says it's delicious, it's sweet, it's juicy, it's soft, that could also be a peach. We have to bite into the mango to know what a mango tastes like. It's impossible to impart that to someone else. Having had the experience of sustained application where the mind does not have any thought process, where peace arises in the mind, where there is a feeling of otherness, where all this rummaging around of the mind has stopped, and where there is a feeling of being in tune that is biting into the mango. One doesn't have to look anywhere else for anything. It counteracts this skeptical doubt very well because that too is a human hindrance that all of us have. We want to find out for ourselves and this is what the Buddha took into consideration when he always urged his listeners not to believe just to have enough confidence to try it out to actually do it and then make up one's own mind the skeptical doubt is compared by the Buddha to being in the desert without a road map and without provisions and obviously having to go round in circles because the desert looks alike everywhere in the end, being overrun by bandits. If we have skeptical doubt about our spiritual path, we will go from here to there. The offerings become more multitudinous by the day. They all promise something, and we can spend probably 
several lifetimes trying them all out and getting nowhere because there is only one absolute truth we can approach it from different angles but the one and only truth remains the same and the promises that people make on the way have nothing to do with truth we have to experience it all ourselves so that going around in circles in the desert without a road map means that we haven't found our direction the antidote outside of meditation that the Buddha prescribed is again of course noble friends and noble conversation but in addition the companionship of wise and mature people so you see how much importance the Buddha has and how much um, confidence he has in our friends and in our companions how important he considers it with whom we are together we also say birds of a feather flock together we need support from others it's very difficult to be on your own that's what um, meditation course also does it's a support system of a group the support system of a teacher that's what a community of spiritually striving people is all about the support system to do it on one's own yes some people are able to do that they are very rare and have had many lifetimes of previous practice the Buddha was one of these he eventually did it by himself but for the ordinary person like ourselves their friends and companions are important he compared the water pond with one in which so many water plants are growing that one can't see one's likeness when we have skeptical doubt we can't see ourselves clearly we don't know exactly where we're going how we're going to get there what is important and what isn't but having had a few moments of peacefulness in the meditation we can see that that's what we were looking for we don't really want all this thinking we really want some peace there isn't enough time to continue the other three factors which I will explain to you tonight but I will just mention one other thing to fully grasp the depth of the Buddha's teaching and benefit from an insight that the Buddha had and has imparted to us to benefit from that to the fullest extent so that 
our whole being can become free liberated totally safe and secure which are all synonyms for Nirvana in order to get to that point or anywhere near that on the way we need a mind that is capable of it obviously it's all in the mind our hindrances and our delusions are in the mind where else can they be freedom enlightenment also in the mind so in order to have access to that profundity and depth of an insight which changes the whole being and the whole understanding and makes one totally free the mind has to have an ability to get away from the marketplace thinking the everyday consciousness the duality and dichotomy in which there is you and me us and them yesterday and tomorrow good and bad wanting and not wanting buying and selling on top of all that that consciousness cannot bring us into a feeling of substancelessness and corelessness a feeling of being totally free from all impediments and all borders all ways of being separate it cannot take us there to reduce this and to finally eliminate the separation that we feel I'm here and you're there we need a mind which is skilled at and capable of removing itself from the everyday consciousness and become aware of entirely different levels of inner being touching upon the purity of our own heart and mind obviously we're not totally pure obviously we're not going to get totally enlightened right away but if we don't at least make attempts in both directions we're not even going to see the path there is a path there is a way there is an end to that path but we've got to get it to see it we've got to taste it therefore in order to have that different level of consciousness to get away from the duality from the dichotomy and the separation the alienation to get away from what we actually do with our mind all the time and which we all know 
to remove ourselves from that, we need to train the mind to be able to stay on a level of consciousness, at least during meditation, which shows us a totally different universe. That is the reason for a concentration in meditation to get to the meditative absorption. To get the mind prepared so that it eventually sees the whole of oneself and existence in the way the Buddha describes it. A mind that hasn't got that ability can intellectualize about it. If we have read enough and heard enough, we can agree to it. Many people do. We can accept it as a different way of seeing oneself in the universe, but we can't feel it. The mind has to be able to have that different level of consciousness. And that's what we're sitting here for, to become concentrated and to gain access to the absorbed state in concentration, in meditation, so that eventually the mind can easily uproot the last remains of the impurities, so that it then has total freedom. I will talk about the rest of this this evening. So, if you have any questions now, yes. Okay. Is your mind wandering and thinking? Are you unnatural? Are you unnatural? Would you call yourself unnatural? Would you? That would be a bit of a put-down, wouldn't it? Sorry? It's habitual, that's right. So, well, what do you think? Do you think there are people who sit down and get concentrated just by saying, I'm now going to be concentrated? Surely you don't like to consider yourself unnatural, do you? It's natural. Got to be trained. When you look at a puppy dog, is it natural for an untrained puppy dog to pee on the carpet? Got to train it. And then it's going to be beautiful. It just scratches on the door and says, I want to go out. Needs training. Okay, what else? Anything else? Well, all we have to do is get absorbed, isn't it? No questions. <laughs>